This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So this is supposed to be a short, simple message. I, I set out almost every week to do that, okay, where I'm like, I'm just going to give a very short message and shock everyone uh, this week, and everyone will be like, is he done? Wait, we just got started. That's like usually his introduction. And I, we'll see. We'll see how well I do here, because I, I'm, I'm sort of famous for once I have a, a short message, or in my mind it's a short message, then I go slower through it, and I take my time, and I give a few extra thoughts here and there, and then it turns into a longer message. So I have to be careful. I'm, I'm going to be an athlete today with this message, not because a short message is more spiritual. In fact, nor is a long message spiritual. That's probably a good thing to say around here. The message that is on God's heart, said in God's manner with God's nature and God's timing and punctuation, I would say is the right way to do it. In publishing, when you're writing a book, uh, in my opinion, a book is finished when the book is said enough. When it's said what it needs to say and then gets the final period in there, we're done. In publishing, it doesn't always work that way because they create a marketing plan based around a book length. I know this sounds very strange, but there's a certain price value that they can put on a certain length. So I remember turning in a book and they said it needs 7,000 more words. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This, have you read it? <laughs> it says what it needs to say. It needs 7,000 more <laughs> words. Could you imagine saying that to me uh, when I'm preaching a message? Uh, Eric, you need uh, you know, 17 more minutes. It's like, gladly. Uh, so you have to be careful. I, I, this, this cover design has to be one of the coolest Annie has ever dished out. Okay, that is amazing. So I give her this title and I, I said, uh, you know, maybe something dropping in the water, maybe some ripples. I said, you could also do an ice cream cone, maybe like a fudge ripple uh, ice cream. Uh, and she came back with this, which is, I, I'm just saying, that is possibly my favorite cover design ever. I mean, I just love this picture. And I don't know what to do with that picture, but that's, that's the soul of the Christian right there. Right there, when Jesus encounters our soul and he takes his lordship, his kingship over us, it sends a ripple effect through our entire life and into this world. One of the things that I remember Oswald Chambers talking about is the fact that many of us as believers, when Jesus drops into our life, he's like a stone or a rock or a boulder crashing into our life and it sends forth a ripple. It's a wave effect. And many of us actually wish we could contain the waves because we know it is going to actually disrupt every life around us. And we don't want to disrupt lives. It's like, God, just change me. He says, I, I am changing you. But this is how I change. I change with ripple effect. And when you are changed, it will impact others. Not everyone appreciates that, which is why it's challenging. God, could we just keep this to ourselves? No, is the answer. This is meant for others. He is giving to you so that your life can give to others, even if they don't appreciate it. It's still the ripple effect of the Spirit's work in you. A ripple. There's, how's this for a fancy definition? A series of concentric small waves on the surface of water created by an object being dropped into it. Yeah, that's, that's about right. We all understand a ripple, and they're fascinating to watch. And... Uh, but a redemptive ripple, a series of waves on the surface of the human soul caused by the person of Jesus Christ dropping into it. When your soul receives Jesus, it creates an impact. And so one of the best ways to describe that, and I could have called this message the domino effect, but I really like the idea of the ripple effect, and it's, it's more, uh, I think, a better picture of the soul than a domino. But a domino effect is still a really good picture of what I'm going to talk about today. The domino effect is defined this way online. The cumulative effect produced when one event sets off a chain of similar events. One thing 
creates a whole bunch of things. So if you've ever heard me teach a World War I, I could actually show you that the certain issues in the Middle East today are a direct result of a gunshot from Gavrilo Princip in June of 1914 when he killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And the domino effect from that all throughout history is monstrous. The last 110 years have been defined by that one gunshot of that one Serbian terrorist. That's amazing. You look at Mary of Bethany when she pours out the spikenard. You know what that triggers? It's a domino that knocks over Judas. Judas goes to the, the priests and sells Jesus and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Dominoes. Boom, and here we are today. So we see that impact, the impact of not just the life of Jesus, which is the greatest domino effect you've ever seen in history, but the impact of our individual lives are significant in the historic landscape. I have a picture just in case you don't understand how the domino effect works. I was pretty proud of my picture too. It's not as good as Annie's, but it's pretty cool, especially when you look at the first one being red. I don't know if this was originally designed for a Christian purpose, but that's pretty cool. The red man, you know, on the cross covered in blood and the, uh, what he does is actually going to trigger the rest of history. Like our lives are going to be changed because of one man's work. However, if we look back to the original Adam, you know what that means? Red man. Did you guys know that? That's what Adam is uh, because he's made of dust. And I guess the earth was very red uh, in the beginning, right? That's coloretto. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we understand here too. And so one man's sin and disobedience is going to create a ripple effect throughout history, and that impacted us too. And many of us are carrying the impact of Adam's behavior still to this day. Not because we're supposed to continue to carry it the way that the enemy wants us to, but because we haven't always been taught how to negate it, how to stop that domino behavior. So Adam, we'll call him the first domino. Isn't that a great name for him? He's called the first man in scripture, which of course makes sense, but it doesn't make a lot of sense when we look at Jesus and he's called the second man. It's like, whoa, 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 77 generations and he's called the second man? Wouldn't uh, Cain be the second man? And yet the second man is a archetype of something. The first man that is going to set the pattern, is going to set the impact. He's going to be the red domino. Now we're going to have a new red domino that's going to set an entirely different course and is going to change and redeem and transform every single thing the first domino did. So Romans 5.12 says it this way, through one man, that's our first domino, Adam, sin entered the world. It's like the one gunshot of, gunshot of Gavrilo Princip. If he had known, many people would say, if Gavrilo Princip had known what was going to happen as a result of that one shot, would he have still shot the Archduke Franz Ferdinand? Well, you could say the same thing to Adam if he could stand back at world history and look at what is going to happen if he follows through and eats of that tree. Do you think he would have still eaten it? It's where the law of sin and death enters into the world. You see, God had given a very clear command. The day in which you eat of that tree, you will die. It's called the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. And so that enters the world and literally all of us have partaken of the effects of that one man. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Whew, that's quite the impact of one man's behavior. One man sinned, all died. The first domino. So we know him as the last Adam. We could call him the last domino, but that sounds a little strange. But Jesus Christ, God himself is going to come to this earth and he is going to accomplish something that is going to negate and not just turn back what the enemy has done, but actually turn it get this, into good. And that, that's quite the statement. It's like, how do you turn Gavrilo Princip's gunshot into something redemptive? And yet that's what we see God doing. He is going to take what the enemy has meant 
to destroy, to harm, to bring evil, and he is going to redeem it. He is going to counteract it in such a way that it actually turns the result into something good. One man died so all could live. So, first Adam, one man sinned and all died. One man died so all could live. That's, that's an amazing statement. One man's sin brought sin on all of us. Get this. One man's righteousness brought righteousness to all of us. That's a ripple effect. Romans 5.15, if by the one man's offense, speaking of Adam, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So we see that much more, that God is doing something exceedingly and abundantly beyond the impact of Adam. So you're, you know, look at the impact of Adam and you're horrified. You should realize that much more in the opposite direction, God is accomplishing a redemptive plan. Much more. So I know that what Adam did was horrible. But what Jesus did was so much better in contrast than it's not just an equal, an, op, an opposing, counteracting uh, force. It's like, oh, we have 10 pounds over here. Oh, Jesus brought 10 pounds over here. Whoa, at least we balance the scales. The enemy brings 10 pounds and Jesus brings 10 million. It totally lofts the enemy's weight into the stratosphere. He has no power, no ability, and that is the redemption of Jesus Christ. What he is accomplishing is so great. You see, we call it the good news. And I've oftentimes complained about the choice of the word good. Because in the English language, the word good just means, that's oh, okay. You know, if I said, so how's your day? It's good. You know, that means it's acceptable. And come on, when you're going to describe the work of Jesus Christ, the word good, maybe back in history past, when early English speakers, when they would say the word good, it meant, oh, it is so incredible, amazing, I've never seen anything like it. Well, what would you call that? It's good. However, that's not the way we use it. And so we need to amp up our phraseology. Whatever adjective we're using to describe this news needs to explode through the roof. Romans 5.18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Adam's work brought sin, then it brought death, then it brought judgment, then it brought condemnation. Boom, 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 boom. Domino after domino falling. But this one man, Jesus Christ, his act is ultimately going to bring justification of life. The old man versus the new man. So at Ellerslie, we talk a lot about the first and the seconds. I'm, I'm literally purposely attempting not to dive into that to be so predictable as to follow my, my classic line uh, there, even though, who knows, I, I still may. But... We start with an old, and we then, in Christ, become new. We are either in Adam, wearing Adam, or we are wearing Christ. There's two positions you can be in in life. That doesn't, there's not like other options. Life seems to be dished out in twos. And so you can't have some alternate version, like, well, I'm in you know, Aristotle. Uh, you are in Adam, or you're in Christ. And so what the Bible teaches is that in Adam, you die. In Adam, there is condemnation. In Adam, you are, have a judgment of death upon you. But in Christ, you have life. You are justified. You are redeemed. In Christ, you have forgiveness of sins. In Christ, you are clothed in his righteousness. And so the key action that seems to be associated with this in Scripture is you are supposed to put off Adam and put on Christ. And so that sounds really good. It's like, okay, how do you do that? We do that by believing. Something known as faith. 
Faith is the noun, believing is the action. I know, it's the same Greek word, but we have two different words in the English language that sound like they aren't the same. But what we're supposed to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe that he is, in fact, our Savior? And when we turn to him with faith and with confidence, we are, by definition, scripturally, putting off an old and putting on a new. We are transferring from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. We are not as we once were. So even though the effects of Adam have been felt in our life and the dominoes that fell have actually impeded, hindered, obstructed, and nullified our ability to produce good fruit with this life, something changes when we come to Jesus. And Jesus, like a stone, lands in the, in the, in the water of our soul it is going to actually send a reverberating effect throughout our life that changes everything. Now, the interesting thing with this change, for it to fully work in us, is we need to walk in faith, and we need to allow that change to happen. We can stifle or quench what God is desiring to do. And sometimes that happens simply through not knowing the truth. You can be set free and not know that you're free. The prison door on your cell could be unlocked and no one tells you. And you could spend 20 years in a prison cell that is unlocked. That doesn't mean you're supposed to be in that prison cell. You were set free, but no one told you that you were set free. You could be a slave, and there could be an emancipation proclamation which frees you from your enslavement. But if no one tells you, you could continue to function as a slave. Even that poor character that is continuing to serve as a slave when they don't need to. And I could say, welcome to life. There's a whole bunch of people that have been set free that have never recognized their freedom. And so if you don't activate by faith and move forward and say, I'm set free, then you will continue to function as if you are in Adam, even though you are in Christ. You see, you have a lot of deep set habits that have been established in Adam. And now that you have transferred into the kingdom of light, you're still used to behaving and living a certain way. So you need to actually put on one of the things it says about the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is that you're supposed to put on the armor. Wouldn't it be better if, it, if God just says, you're already in the armor, now just walk in it, which is a part truth, but there is that extra action of putting it on, which is the concept of believing that you have it. Put it on. Do you not have a belt of truth? Do you not have a helmet of salvation? Do you not have a breastplate of righteousness? Do you not have a shield of faith, a sword of the spirit, and boots that are like the, of the gospel of peace? Do you not have this? You do. Okay, now live it. Act like you have it. When you were in the midst of the dead of winter, and you know, I don't want to throw Colorado under the bus because we get some you know, better winters than we oftentimes have a reputation for. But say it's like negative 10. Not that we would ever get to negative 10 here in Colorado. But let's say, let's say hypothetically it was negative 10 and really bad weather. And you were outside. Well, your lifespan has suddenly just shrunk because you can't live physically as a human that long in such conditions. And as a result, I could imagine that you would fear that weather that you would dread the outcome of that weather because you do not have a shelter. But what if and how would, would it differ if you knew that you had a house and you knew that that house was well insulated and you knew that it had doors and uh, windows on it and that they were all shut and it was negative 10 degrees outside? You know that your thinking becomes very, very different and your actions that night and the way you sleep that night are gonna be very, very different. As a Christian, some of us still live as if we're out in the cold and that we're vulnerable to all that the enemy wants to bring against our life instead of recognizing that we have a refuge. And it's a temperature-controlled refuge that will save us from the cold and that we can sleep well tonight knowing that his furnace will care for us and it will not go out. 
Ephesians 4.22 says, put off the old man. Romans 13.14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. An establishing shot. You know, I've been hanging around this movie business a little lately, and I actually was caught off guard by the fact that I'd never thought about an establishing shot. It'd never been in my head. And I remember someone talking about, yeah, we need to stick in an establishing shot in this. And you know, I thought it was just fine. I, I don't see why you need an establishing shot, whatever that is. Why do we need to add anything different? And it's because as a viewer of a movie, we take it for granted because people stick in establishing th- shots. If you're in one situation in some cabin and then suddenly you go to a castle uh, on the other side of the world, it helps for whatever reason, as the viewer of a movie, for an establishing shot to show the outside of the castle and maybe even someone walking up to it. It only needs to be seconds, but it gives you the sense of context. It reminds you that you're no longer in that cabin in the hills of Colorado, but you're actually in a castle in London, England, right? And that's important for us to actually know as viewers of a movie. And so I'm going to say using the same concept of an establishing shot, the moment I began to think about that, I was like, you know what? That is interesting because to view a movie and to interpret it correctly, you actually have to know your context. You have to know where you're at so that you can enter into the scene properly. And we don't think about it because you're not supposed to think about it. You're supposed to just follow what what the uh, storyteller is giving you. But in Christianity, oftentimes we don't have an establishing shot for the truth that we're reading in scripture. We don't recognize that this is our truth. We don't see the context and how this relates to us. So I wanna talk about that for a second. It's gonna play a a role in this. So an establishing shot, here's a, a, a fun definition for it. An establishing shot is a shot in filmmaking or television that sets up the context for the scene ahead, designed to inform the audience where the action will be taking place. It shows the relationship between people and objects and establishes the scene's geography. Fun. The establishing shot for your soul. One of the questions I ask the students at Ellerslie a lot is what is your position? It's almost like saying, what is the establishing shot right now? As we go into this next thought or this scripture, I want you to know your place, your context. Where are you? Are you in Adam as you listen, as you reason through this? Or are you actually in Christ? Are you out in the cold or are you in the warm dwelling place of a home that has doors and windows? That actually massively impacts how you are hearing the truth. Because sometimes, I mean, imagine what it would feel like to hear about some great house, you know, uh, you know, some other place in the world that is always temperature controlled and it has some great insulation in it, has a great furnace and it keeps it 69 degrees always through the winter. It doesn't matter if it goes negative 20 or not. Wouldn't it be great to hear something like that if you're living under a bridge in the open, cold weather, you know, with gusts of wind blowing against you, and all you have is your shopping cart? How encouraging is that to know that there is some house out there that, yes, does have great insulation, and yes, does stay warm. The key is you must see that that house is your house. You must see that you have a key to that house. You must recognize that the door opens with that key. And you must recognize that it is right here in front of you and you no longer need to stay in the open air in that cold under that bridge. You have been invited in. So some questions that help with establishing our context, our establishing shot for our soul. What is your position? Do you know that? Because I've asked people what their position is, and they might say something like, I, I think I'm in Christ. And I would say, well, that's a starter package, and you know, that's better than I think I'm not in Christ. However, I want you to know that you 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 know your position. You see, faith equates to position. So if you have faith, even if it's a small faith, and you have confidence in your God, one of the questions I always ask is, do you want to be saved? It's like, yes. Do you believe God is able to save? Yes. Do you believe he's able to save you? I think so. Let's upgrade that. Oh, yes. 
You see, there is no hindrance on God's part. God is not saying, yeah, you need to pass a few more tests before I'm going to save you. God is a savior. By definition, he is, I am a savior, which means he was, he is, and he always will be a savior. This is an I am aspect or attribute of his nature. Even the name Jesus translated, if you were to say Yeshua, means I am saves. He did save, he does save, and he always will save. And your I am saves. His specialty is saving. And so if you desire to be saved and you turn to him and say, Lord, please save me, I guarantee you he's not going to decline. It's his delight. And the reason you desire to get saved, just think about this, the reason you desire to get saved is because he desires to save you. So you can take it to the bank that you have yourself a savior. And if you have that faith, even if it's small, you are by definition in Christ. What is your position? You are in Christ. Where are you in this battle? Are you fighting for the enemy? Are you fighting on God's side? Which side are you in? Well, if you're in Christ, you're with Christ. You're in his work. Are you still inside Adam? Not if you're in Christ. Are you indeed inside Christ? You see, this is what you need to establish for an establishing shot. When you get awakened in the middle of the night with accusation from the devil or different depressive thoughts, the different things, the enemy loves to take nighttime and just sort of thwart you and stir you up. You need to know your position. You need to freshly get the establishing shot for your soul to know your position in Christ. You can see that castle in, you know, somewhere in England, right? Because you know, that's, of course, what Jesus would look like, right? He'd be in England, some countryside castle in England, and that's Jesus, and that's where you live, right? You're not under the bridge anymore. Amazing establishing shots. By the way, if you recognize that I had these same blocks, block colors last week, it's because I sort of stole uh, from those blocks. I thought that would be easy. And of course, it would bring some recognition to all of us. We liked those blocks last week. Very different use for them. But amazing establishing shots. There are certain times in your life where you need to see the cross. You need to see that this was already carried you need to see this was already dealt with. And so the establishing shot in that moment when the devil is accusing you is the cross. Do you see it? Because, you know, your director of this grand storyline wants to show that to you as you enter into this battle with the enemy. Do you see the cross, Eric? I do. Do you remember what the cross means to you? Not just what it means historically. What does it mean to Eric Ludi? It means he carried my burden. It means he carried the penalty. It means he is my righteousness. Sometimes you need to see the empty tomb. Eric, your life still looks like the old version. Jesus rose again, and I am in him. Therefore, I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. I am a new creature. I am a new creation in Jesus that is the fact. I need to see the establishing shot as I go into that battle with the enemy and he comes against me and tries to break down my confidence in who God has called me to be and what God has done for me. And sometimes that establishing shot needs to be you see him high and lifted up. You see him seated on high at the right hand of majesty and you see all things beneath his feet. King of kings, Lord of lords. And you need to have that establishing shot in your life as you go to do battle. As you go and you wake up in the morning you feel that sludge upon you, you need to remember your position. See the establishing shot. Let the storyteller bring you into the scene and remind you that you are in Christ in that seat in him. And if all things are under his feet, then all things are under your feet. You walk in the authority of the Most High God. The redemptive ripple, reckoning the truth. So it's a term we use at Ellerslie a lot. It's a Paul term, and he uses it in Romans 6, and that is to reckon. You're supposed to reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto Jesus Christ. So you're supposed to reckon two key things, as it says in Romans 6 that you're dead in Christ, and that you're alive in Christ. 
And so to reckon is an accounting term, which means to take something to your account by faith. So it would be the equivalent of you knowing that you have zero dollars in your account, and I tell you, actually I wired $1,000 into your account, so that check, you can write it. So you have a checkbook, and you, you, know, you need to write a check, otherwise something terrible is going to happen. You, you guys know how the story goes, right? And you have to write a check, but you know you don't have anything to cover it. And so you're hesitating because you don't have the resource. And then I come to you and I say, no, I wired, wired $1,000 in there. You can, you can write that check. Now, here's the key. Do you believe my word? Do you trust my character? If I'm a liar and a cheat, are you going to have confidence writing that check? No. But what if I'm a truth teller? What if, like God, I cannot lie? And if, what if God's word says, I transferred $1,000 into that account? Are you going to have the confidence to write that check? That's what it means to reckon. To reckon means to take by faith at the word of God that it is there, even if you can't feel it, you can't handle it, you can't touch it. You know God tells the truth. Even though you can't see it, go online and, and check your account, you're going to take it at his word that that's there and you're going to act upon it. And for Christianity, this is the essence of what makes us successful. You see, you need to know that God's word is trustworthy. And you need to know that when he spoke it, he cannot lie. You can take it to the bank. You can write the check off of it. And some of us are waiting till we feel something. My classic example is there's a buffet in the back, and it's like this, this cart full of the most extraordinary foods and drinks. And you know, it's just great stuff, right? Everything that you would love is on that cart. And you're up here at the front of the stage, and you're starving to death. You're so hungry, you're gaunt, you're weak. And, and I tell you that there is a, a cart back there that uh, has all the food that you need. And you're like, oh, I go, do you believe it? Yeah, I believe that, you know, there's probably a cart back there. And then what Paul would say is, reckon that cart yours. You see, what you're waiting for is the cart to be carted in here, pulled in front of you, someone to take out a spoon and stick it in your mouth and make you chew it. And then you'll believe that there's actually food back there. When God says, take it at my word, the moment you believe that there's food back there, how does it change your behavior up here? If you genuinely believe that there's food back there and it belongs to you, what would you do? You would use these legs that God gave you, even if you feel a little weak as you stand up, because God gave you the equipment to respond to his call. He has given you truth. He's given you promise. Now reckon it yours and don't sit there like an idiot waiting for the cart to be brought to you and the food to be stuck in your mouth. That's not faith. Faith rises up at the word of God and takes it into their account. Reckon. So the redemptive ripple is all reckoning. You guys ready for this? We're going to go through 11 things. This is all in Ephesians uh, 1. And I can, I can teach on Ephesians because Nathan isn't here today. Uh, otherwise, you know, he would be like censoring the whole thing. So, uh, and for those of you that don't understand that, Nathan Johnson has taught on Ephesians since I've known him, which is somewhere around 15, 16 years, and he's still teaching on Ephesians. I think he said the other day, what is he through, like chapter three or something like that, maybe chapter four? It's like, come on, buddy. Uh, and so as a result, all the rest of us feel like uh, weak need when we start getting to the, the Ephesians. We're like, I can't speak on Ephesians when Nathan is around. So Nathan's not around. So this is uh, Ephesians chapter one, and it is gonna go through what I could call redemptive rippling effect. All the things that are yours in Christ when you believe. So when you were in Adam, you are vulnerable to the enemy's accusations. Could you imagine you're in Adam and the enemy says, you're doomed? Well, uh, he's sort of right. <laughs> I mean, actually, that's true. You know, you, you sure are a mess. You know, that, that's, that's another truth. And you're vulnerable to the enemy's attack because you are vulnerable in life because you are in a position of rebellion against the Most High God. He didn't design you to be remaining in this position of defeat and condemnation. He has given you an outlet, an access, a way to the Father, a way to salvation. And so in Adam, you're going to hear all sorts of stuff. Now, when you're in Christ, I'm not gonna say you're not going to hear it because everything I'm gonna give in these 11 things are things that every one of us in here have heard. But 
you need to know the truth. In Ephesians 1 through, uh, well, Ephesians chapter 1, I don't know which verse it ends in. I was going to say 1 through 11, but I don't know if it's that simple. And right in the very beginning, the first chapter, it's going to walk through 11 different things that are ours in Christ that combat all of the accusations of the enemy. So when he speaks, you need to reckon what is in your account. So when he says something like this, you are accursed, give up, it will never work out for you. You ever had that one feeling that somehow other people seem to have an enchanted, blessed life and you have it hard? Like everything that could go wrong seems to go wrong for you. The devil wants to feed on that and he wants to build upon that. He wants to convince you that you are accursed. He wants to get you to give up in this faith venture because it doesn't seem to stick or take hold for you. This is where you answer back because you need to know your position. Do you have an establishing shot? Do you see the cross? Do you see the empty tomb? Do you see the seated position? Do you recognize that you in turning and believing in Jesus Christ, have transferred from darkness unto light. Do you realize that you are no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ? And if so, you need to preach to your soul the truth of Ephesians chapter one. In Christ, I am blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Fact. The question is, will you take it to your account? Or will you sit here on the stage hungry, listening to the enemy berate you, or will you rise up and take hold of that which is yours in Christ Jesus? No, you're not accursed. You're blessed. Fact, right there. It sure doesn't feel like blessing. I know. I understand that. But it does not negate the truth. When the truth of God is spoken to your life, we oftentimes look at how it feels instead of what the truth is. God isn't asking you to feel your way to a conclusion. He's asking you to believe. And when you believe, your experience and your feelings will follow. So here's another wonderful statement from the devil. No one can see your need. No one cares about your struggles. Uh, the old self-pity line. You guys ever fallen for that one? Where you're all alone. No one cares about you, right? Do you have an answer for this? Are you just going to take that? Are you going to be the enemy's punching bag? Come on, guys. Haven't you looked at Ephesians? What's your position? Do you have an establishing shot? In Christ, I am chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Talk about some special attention you don't just have special attention from someone in this world. You have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords going out of his way to say them right there. I want them. Wow, talk about something to brag about. You are chosen in Christ. Fact. Number three, in Adam. Oh, listen to this one, guys. You are dirty, filthy, and deranged. God would never want you. Now, if you haven't brushed up against this one, you haven't lived very long in your Christian life because all it takes is one slip up, one mistake, anything that deviates from the perfect and the enemy jumps on your back with accusation and he wants to rub your nose in it. You're dirty, you're filthy, you're deranged. What's the facts? You see, everything the enemy says to you always usually resonates with a part truth. And that is the fact that, yep, I blew it. Yep, that was dirty. <laughs> that wasn't right. But that's not the statement over my life. My kids can make a mistake, but that doesn't remove them from being my beloved children. They are still my beloved children, and I will forgive them. But that doesn't mean that the enemy can't hop on their back and say, you blew it, and try and convince them that their dad won't love them anymore or that their dad won't forgive them. And that's exactly the enemy's tactic. What is the truth in Christ? I am holy and without blame before him in love. This list that I'm going through, and by the way, did we get the handouts? I don't, okay, why don't you grab that? I have handouts for each of you with this list of 11. It's, I must be so unused to giving you guys handouts anymore that I totally forgot about that. But Rebecca printed them out and she'll get them passed out to you guys. But so then if you're trying to write all this down, this will be a little easier version. You'll see the 11 lies on one side and you'll see the 11 truths on the other. 
Number four, in Adam. You're all alone. You're pitiful and without hope in this world. What is the truth in Christ? I am adopted as his child. These are powerful truths, guys. If you can know these things in your soul, it sets you free. You have it. The door to the cell is unlocked. You need to get up and walk out and stop listening to the enemy as he berates. Number five, in Adam, you are rejected. Everyone has failed you. You are unwanted. What is the truth in Christ? I am accepted in the beloved. That's a fact, guys. These are facts that are not based on our perfection. They're based on his perfection. They're not based on our performance. They're based on his performance. They're not based on our works. They're based on his works. Our confidence is not in what we do. Our confidence is in what he has done and what he will do. We live by faith in the Son of God, not faith in our ability to mimic the Son of God. We are works in process, being sanctified by the one who is perfect. He is the one that does the great work of salvation. And so in these processes that we walk through, we need to remember that, that it is never, it never has been nor never will be dependent upon our perfection. We are accepted in the beloved. Why? Because his work is perfect. He has done what was needed to bring acceptance to us in the beloved. Number six, in Adam. How about this quote, guys? You will pay eternally for your crimes. You knew better, but you did the deed anyway. That's despicable. It's really hard to argue that one, isn't it? Because it is so right. It is despicable. I did know better. But you need to know the truth. And I talked about this last week. This is not to excuse and to cheapen the grace of God, but you need to know that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. You need to remember in these moments that the way we honor God is by turning to him and not away from him after, we re- re- after our crimes are revealed. When he is bringing something to the surface in our life, that is the time to draw closer to him, not turn away from him. The devil's ploy is to intervene in those moments of conviction and bring it into condemnation, as opposed to conviction turning towards mercy and forgiveness. The art of being a Christian is allowing God to be our savior every step of this journey. In the process, he is perfecting us. He is maturing us. We're not supposed to stay in spiritual diapers. However, if we have a behavior that is not befitting the kingdom of heaven, he has made something available, cleaning tools available for such things. It is known as the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So number six, what is the truth in Christ? I am redeemed in Christ. Now, one of my favorite thoughts in Christianity is the redemptive thought. And that is in every situation, God will turn that. God will turn that. There is nothing that you could bring up before the throne of grace and say, God, I don't believe you can turn that into good. You see, the enemy hatches evil schemes. God hatches redemptive schemes. He takes what the enemy means to harm, to distort, to derange, and he transforms it into a beautiful picture of his goodness. This is our God. If it's a chess game, everything the enemy does, he says, checkmate. He's got him. We want to make sure we're putting our confidence in God as the master chess player instead of the enemy. The enemy is going to lose. Do we know that? And even in those dark moments when the enemy is howling at our soul and he's even talking about real things that we have done, do we know whose work we rely on? Is it our righteousness that we lean on or is it Christ's? And in those moments, that is very key. Number seven, in Adam, what does the enemy say? You are unforgivable. There is no way God can forgive that. What is the truth in God's kingdom? In Christ, I am forgiven of my sins in Christ. Ephesians 1.7. Number eight, in Adam. You ever heard this one? You are a fool. You'll never learn. 
You ever felt that one? Especially when you're stuck in that cyclical pattern of defeat. God, I'll never do this again. There you go. And then the enemy hops on your back. You are a fool. You'll never learn. And again, it's really hard to argue these things. The enemy's got a point, guys. (laughs) And yet, what is the truth? And this is what you must reckon in those moments. Number eight, in Christ. I have spiritual wisdom in Christ. (laughs) Praise God. I'm not the proverb fool from the Old Testament, but I have turned my life over to Christ and I have been given spiritual wisdom. And right now that spiritual wisdom says, knock the enemy in the teeth and receive the mercy of God's forgiveness. That's actually the wisdom of heaven. Play it against the enemy. You have something. You have spiritual wisdom in this moment. Reckon it yours. Number nine, in Adam. You don't get it, do you? You'll never change. What's the answer? In Christ, I have spiritual understanding in Christ, which means you have everything you need to comprehend what is necessary for forward movement. Everything has been supplied to you. You do know the truth. You can know the truth for your life and for others. Number 10, in Adam, it's very simple. You're doomed. Number 10, in Christ, I know the mystery of his will in Christ Jesus. You have life. Number 11, in Adam, you'll be cast off forever all alone in the pit of hellish darkness. In Christ, I've obtained an inheritance in Christ. Ephesians 1.11. It did go through 11 verses. See, look at that. The establishing shot for your soul. The enemy has a lot up his sleeve. He's been doing this 6,000 years. He is very good at belittling the saints. He's very good at undermining our confidence in the word of God. He's very good at accusing us. It's like his specialty. I mean, even it's a name of his, the accuser of the brethren. Boy, talk about a name. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. This is who he is. This is not who God is. God has come to give you life, and that more abundant. He is a Savior. He was a Savior, He is a Savior, and He always will be a Savior. He is a Redeemer who will take what the enemy means for evil, and He'll turn it to good. He takes all things in this life, and He steers them for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. This is our God, which is why we can stand confident knowing that no weapon fashioned against us actually shall prosper. The enemy has weaponry fashioned against us, but it will not prosper. Why? Because of God, the one you have found refuge in. Oh, that negative 10 degree storm coming up? You need not fear it. Why? Because he will be your shelter. You can sleep well that night. So should you fear negative 10 degrees next week? Not if you are well housed. You have what you need to face the future, to face an an incoming rush of the enemy with full confidence. It's called a shield of faith. It is part of your equipment. And what does it do to all the fiery arrows of the evil one? It repels them. Every single one of them. You are in Christ. Your establishing shot is exactly that. Do you remember the cross? Do you remember the empty tomb? Do you remember where he is seated? Because if you do, there is nothing, no advantage the enemy has over you, over your soul, over your thinking, over your living. The redemptive ripple. If you are indeed in Christ, then dot, 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 You fill in the blank. At Ellerslie, we walk through this at a very deep level. I, Eric Ludy, am in Christ. Therefore, when he died on that cross, I died. My old man was crucified with him. Just as Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Old Eric is dead. And just as Christ was buried, so is old Eric buried. My old life is buried. And just as Christ rose from the dead, I am in him. Therefore, I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. I have a resurrected life. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
And just as Christ rose from the dead, he ascended to the highest position. He sat down at the right hand of majesty. And guess what it says in Ephesians? I am seated in heavenly places in Christ. So let's, let's go through this redemptive ripple. When he died, you died. When he was buried, your old life was buried. When he rose again, you rose to newness of life. When he ascended, you ascended with him. Your spiritual man is seated with him in heavenly places. Now let's go through the 11 things in Ephesians. You are blessed. You are chosen. You are holy and without blame before him. You are adopted as his child. You are accepted. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You have spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know the mystery of his will. You have obtained an inheritance. Reckon it. You have been given truth. It's up to you to take it. You could sit on the stage and remain hungry. Remain vulnerable to the enemy's berating and accusations. Or you could turn towards Jesus, find him as your shelter, and actually stake claim to the great work of Jesus for you. You are very, very precious to Jesus Christ. And this truth is your truth. It's easy sometimes in Christianity to believe for someone else. It's like, no, I believe God loves them. Yeah, and I believe God has forgiven them. But it's harder to believe it personally. Isn't that weird? What is that? And yet God wants you to engage with this personally. This must become your truth. This is your reality. Because to wield it as weaponry against the enemy, to be able to say, devil, it is written. And you could go through each one of those. I am blessed. It is written, I am chosen. It is written, I am holy and without blame before him. It is written, I am adopted as his child. These are facts in the heavenly kingdom that cannot lie. Your job is simply to trust them, to believe them, to lean your weight upon them. God has spoken. Take him at his word. Father, we must have the grace of God to even receive, to apprehend, to understand, to comprehend the vastness of your plan. But Lord, I pray that you would tenderize our souls and make them supple to receive and that we would be able to grasp with the spiritual wisdom you have given us and the spiritual understanding we do have, this amazing reality that we are in Christ. We are in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his seated position. We are his children. We have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. Lord, may we walk that now, today, so that the world may see the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they may see you more clearly. We pray these things in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.